If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Sergeant Ario Piro, who served as a tank commander in World War II. He fought amongst the notoriously difficult hedgerows during the invasion of Normandy and was trapped in the cellar of a bakery during the Battle of the Bulge. Well, I was born in 1917. I believe when I was in the, in the service in January 1942, I was uh, 25. Uh, before Pearl Harbor, I was in the selective service system. I had uh, my exam, and uh, I got my classification and was waiting for a uh, order to report for duty at the time of Pearl, of, uh, Pearl Harbor. And I got my report, and I uh, was inducted at Fort Devens, Massachusetts on January 15, 1942. Uh, I took my eight weeks basic training at Fort Knox and went to Camp Polk. There, I uh, became part of D Company of the 33rd Armored Regiment of the 3rd Armored Division. And I remained with that D Company until the uh, end of my service. When we arrived in England, uh, we were stationed at Warminster, which was, uh, we took that over from a British a tank uh, training center. And uh, we were equipped with the uh, M5 light tank, which was the Stuart. And that had been uh, improved from the previous models. We had uh, in that tank uh, a uh, uh, system of balance of, of the cannon so that you could supposedly fire uh, on the move. Uh, and uh, it had automatic drop-type breach so that when you fired the round, it uh, automatically ejected into a canvas bag um, and um, so you get ready to put in another round. And in the tank setup itself, uh, in the turret, the tank sat on the right side of the gun, the gun was on the left side, and you had forward of the gunner, the driver, and forward of the tank commander, the assistant driver, who uh, when necessary manned that 30 caliber machine gun in front of him. And, uh, of course, the tank commander had an added duty, not only commanding the tank, but also to load the 37 millimeter. And I had a driver who kiddingly called me the uh, assistant loader uh, as a tank commander. So, but that was the duty. And, of course, that uh, uh, we had internal communication system along with the radio system where we could communicate with the other tanks, and um, which was uh, uh, necessary because uh, in combat, of course, uh, you wouldn't get out and wave your hand at some of the tank uh, to tell them what to do. So, uh, 
as a tank commander, I was a sergeant, buck sergeant. The Germans had been at war for several years. They had a chance to improve their tanks, and they had learned. Uh, they had, I, I think, in the Normandy t- time frame, uh, still some of their smaller tanks, which were even better than ours as far as firepower and protection for the crews because of the thickness of the armor and the high-velocity guns. Uh, at that point in Normandy, of course, uh, we uh, have so much uh, forest area that uh, we didn't uh, really uh, have much chance to observe the German tanks. But uh, their tanks, I believe, at that point were not, they didn't have the Tiger tanks or the Panther tanks, which were their, their heavier tanks. Uh, but whatever they had was a lot better than we had. A lot better in the way of muscle velocity and and ability to withstand impact with a uh, anti uh, uh, tank uh, projectile. That was also evident. Another area that where we knew we were outclassed uh, as far as firepower was the bazookas. Uh, the Germans had um, well two types. Uh, one is the uh, type where they uh, had the big. Uh, bulbous-like forward end of the of the bazooka that uh, they could fire uh, under the arm. And uh, favorite way of doing it was to uh, drop down to one knee and have that bazooka under their arm and fire it. Fortunately, they were not as accurate as the so-called stovepipe type of German, which was very accurate. I found that out later. Uh, but... Uh, in the close quarters, really, the, the bazookas were something we had to be on the lookout for, even more than uh, the German tanks. They didn't really didn't have that many tanks uh, in that phase. There was one uh, hill in, um, in Normandy uh, that was held by the Germans. And uh, because of its elevation, of course, they had command of a view of a large area. And... Uh, uh, we had our chance in uh, helping to assault that position. It was really perhaps one of our first major uh, assaults, the platoon. And, uh, but it was difficult because uh, the fields, you had uh, a field where there may be low brush, a 42, uh, surrounded by high brush of, of uh, 10, 20, or even trees. So you had an enclosed area, and you didn't know what was beyond the next hedgerow. And uh, <clears throat> all the uh, Germans had to do was to be in the in the hedgerow part of it and pop out, as we saw in, I remember that first assault we had there, where for the first time I saw a German come in front of the, the hedgerow and drop to the knee and fire the uh, the bazooka at us. Fortunately, he missed, missed. But uh, that was the, I think, the, uh, you couldn't see maybe maybe 100 yards beyond the next hedgerow, which made it difficult to know what was beyond there. And, of course, when you're in those hedgerows, you have an area of maybe 100 yards by 100 yards, uh, which would have been probably pasture for the cattle. Uh, you didn't know what was going on in the next hedgerow area. The um, problem, of course, was in the hedgerows, it was elevated land, uh, which was uh, 
with trees and brush. So it would always be difficult to get up over them. But uh, they designed uh, this plow, really a plow or prow, I guess, in front of a medium tank uh, to uh, bust through a portion of the hedgerow that would give you an opening to go through at uh, on level land or putting near level land. And uh, so that was the, the purpose of that. See, we were the light tank, so we, we didn't have that push uh, that the mediums had. And uh, what we did uh, there start to, they had, because of the bazooka problem, a lot of the tanks had uh, logs attached to the sides and things, and we had uh, sandbags in front, on the front plate of the tank. That was to explode the bazookas if it hit the sandbag, and hopefully exploded before it penetrated the metal. Sometimes we were used as security uh, to protect a building or so forth. And other times uh, when we were moving, uh, we would be with the, the task force. And uh, our mission at times was if the uh, lead tank, you'll be a, a medium tank, was knocked out, the colonel would call us up to take care of whatever knocked it out. So I know that was several times that was mission that I was on. Uh, one in particular, I think and think of right now, uh, was uh, where there were, eventually turned out there were two 88 uh, multi-purpose ND uh, guns that had knocked out the lead part of the, the lead tank. And uh, Colonel Lovely had called me up, take the first platoon on a mission on the left, which was open land. The infantry were going to try to get take on the right side, which had some brush and so forth, but our mission was to sweep across an open field to proceed to flank the guns. Uh, at that point, I had some infantry on the, I was leading the uh, first platoon at that point, that was in Germany, and uh, the, uh, uh, I was in the middle going across, and uh, when we, we raced across with infantry on the, on the back of the tanks, we raced across the field, this field, open field, we didn't know that there was a big ditch in the, in the middle of this, this field. We hit that ditch, and remember, infantry got knocked off, and uh, I get bumped around a bit. We're approaching uh, the uh, uh, area where the guns were, and uh, it was a little raining and uh, orchard. And as we approached, apparently the German defenders of the gun thought it wise to surrender, so they surrendered. And, um, and I remember there was still one round in one of the guns, and infantry, of course, got off the tanks. One, once we get into the tree area, the infantry get off the tanks to uh, move along with us, and and uh, someone got on one of the 88 uh, guns, and good thing the, it was elevated to shoot the sky, and they pulled the lanyard, and boom, it went off. So, But if they were both working, I'm sure they could have knocked all five tanks out on the corner across this field, the field, but... Um, they were wise to give up, I guess. You see, in this, in that situation at the crossroads, open land, the enemy was in slit trenches, and light tanks were great because we had the ability used two machine gun, thirty caliber machine guns and a cannon to do destroy the Germans in the slit trenches, and that, of course, that was how we did it there, and uh, so. I think perhaps visibility was better, light tanks. And in that position, uh, uh, I could see everything. 
I was a believer in keeping my head up. That was dangerous for the tank commander. More tank commanders, I think, got shot right through the, the head than any other group of, of people. Uh, but at least uh, we had a chance of seeing what was going on better. Down inside the tanks, you were very limited as to what you could see. Uh, unless you moved that, that uh, periscope, uh, physically moved you, you'd be looking straight ahead. And so with your head out, all you do is just turn your head. And it was a quick way of identifying where the enemy was. And, uh, of course, that's why I did it. There were a few occasions when I had to put my head in, but most of the time I had my eyeballs hanging over the top of the turret. And uh, I attribute a lot of my success (laughs) in that, really. That was an interesting phase, and maybe I'm picking that up because what we ran into at that point, not only the dug-in infantry, but uh, we were getting anti-tank fire, and we had a German tank come out of that town on the right to come up to uh, reinforce the dug-in infantry in front of us. And uh, as soon as we had uh, cleared the area, I had my tank knocked out there. We had got the first shot off at that German tank coming up. Luckily, it was not one of the bigger tanks. And um, when uh, I saw the bazooka, a uh, German come up out of his bazooka. He had the stovepipe bazooka, accurate, hit the right side of the tank. But uh, he didn't get come out of that foxhole because we poured most of a belt of ammunition in there. Nobody came up any foxhole in front of my tank. And um, as soon as uh, that happened and we're close to the road, kind of lovely, called over the radio, fixed Piro up, and off the, the, the task force went down towards... Uh, so, in that particular case, uh, it knocked the track off. I don't know what other exterior damage, but we still used the guns. We couldn't move, but at least we were able to use the guns. I could use the radio. And we're very fortunate if it had hit center, either on the turret or down below where the driver was, uh, it would have penetrated the tank. The frontal part of the turret where I was, I wouldn't be here today. Yeah. But luckily, they, it hit the, the right side, right track of the tank. In the bulge, uh, we were hit uh, at night at Petty Cool. It was somewhere on the side. It was dark. And I know we had sparks and, and fumes uh, come into the tank, but we were still able to, uh, to function. It all depends on where it was hit, but the bazooka, that, that meant a penetration that could continue on. With a high-velocity uh, anti-tank projectile, it would not only penetrate the, the uh, outer compartment, but go through the tank. And uh, with most of the German anti-tank guns, uh, they could have penetrated my tank from one side to the other and gone through another light tank through that. Yeah. The anti-tank projectile would be uh, just to penetrate and uh, that would go through any area uh, without any explosive, unless it hit, say, the gas tanks. That was the danger of hitting gas tanks and set you on fire. A couple of times when I got over the radio, my tank was on fire. Uh, it was uh, baggage I had in the back of the tank, luckily. 
that was on fire. That happened in Normandy and uh, later at, uh, I think, Mons when we were uh, mopping up, uh, dug in infantry again. That was our mission in, in that point, to to mop up uh, infantry who dug in, in slit trenches. And we were, I think, very well equipped for that. But the projectile, being a solid metal part, uh, was built to penetrate. Uh, now, the explosive uh, shells, uh, they would explode perhaps on the outside and explode. But if that penetrated, and they, that was, it's not built for penetration and explosive inside. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. We were in Germany. This was, um, and um, we had penetrated the uh, minefield there at the approach to Schreppensiel and Hattenrath, which is uh, east of Stolberg. And uh, we were there when the bolt started. And uh, we left that area to go down into the bulge. We got down uh, uh, south of La Glaze, uh, and uh, we, the main task force had, had gone further south, down towards Trepon, and the first platoon of B Company was dropped off. Uh, the uh, task force commander had, had, with the medics had set up, taken over one building, small building, as the first aid station. So uh, we were left behind five tanks at that point and uh, to just stay in that area, uh, offer some protection. And uh, there were two German vehicles knocked out like in front of the building and uh, German dead behind on the railroad tracks. That was a place where coming down from the north, we crossed the river and crashed over a railroad a bridge. And then the road proceeded towards uh, Tree Pond. And at the time, we were not that familiar with the area. 
it was, uh, oh, we was there uh, for a while. And then in the afternoon, the Germans came uh, over the hill. They were, came uh, to our north and like to our left, heading towards a place to our north. We saw them. They came down over the hill. There must have been 50 or somebody or, or so, that many. And uh, we started to fire at them, the machine guns mostly. And we drifted back to where the bridge was. And apparently that was their objective because that would, would be the way over the railroad bridge and over the river. And uh, it was late afternoon and the bazooka started all around us. So we, we got back to there and we stopped. And uh, I radioed headquarters as what was going on. I was told, uh, wait there, and infantry would come up to help us. And we would, and uh, so we spent there maybe a couple of hours. I don't know what time of night it was then. They came up, I took over the plume. My friend Alfred Bell was the platoon sergeant. He was back at the first aid station. I took over the platoon and uh, led the attack back to the first aid station and uh, put the platoon in a position where we would fire on both sides of the road at the houses to set them on fire. We get back to the first aid station. I get out of the tank and uh, started with the door. And uh, my friend came to the door. And as all I remember was that don't hurt these German. Uh, they were good to him or something like that. And a bazooka hit the tank behind me, knocked me up to the ground, helmet rolled off, and I had some shrapnel on my back, went back into the, my tank and started to fire back. And uh, from that point on for several hours, uh, there was a little high ground on the, on the left side, turned the turret around, and they were firing bazookas at left side from the front. And I opened the radio up so headquarters could hear me. And... Uh, the tank behind me, there was nobody in there uh, left. And um, so we fired, uh, we're firing back every time we see a, a, a bazooka flash and uh, we, could, we could hit and uh, have the smoke and sparks come in and the gunner want to get out. If he, if he left, there'd be nobody to man the cannon there on that side. So I held them back in and... Uh, we kept firing. We, I guess we almost ran out of ammunition. We finally had to go into the, the building. And at that point, uh, we were in the building. The infantry had already been in it. As soon as we got to the buildings, the infantry had gone into the buildings. And uh, so we were up on the, it was uh, like one and a half story building. It was, we found out later, it was uh, a bakery. And they had a big oven in, in the cellar. We got up on the first floor and we were under attack from all sides at that point. And uh, I recall a projectile coming through the brick wall on the floor. I remember putting my uh, overshoe foot on it to try to put it out. There was no, no reason for that, but it was just one of those natural things. And uh, so as the top of the building started being, we had to go down into the cellar. And at that point, uh, there were two rooms in the cellar. One was sort of a, a back room there and the wounded and so forth get in that building. And there was a, a big oven in the front side. And I remember at that point that uh, one of the infantry took position on one side and I took a position on the other side with a Tommy gun waiting for the Germans to come through. Well, the German had asked us to surrender. I'll call it surrender. 
We didn't. There was some firing. We were in the cell until the next next morning. And um, I always believed that the German officer surrender was the one that was German dead right outside the back door. There was a tank uh, around the back there that the next day I uh, get in there and called headquarters and I got orders to, or authority to, the men didn't want to, couldn't stay there any longer. I had to get out. And uh, as soon as I came back in the building and, and because uh, the burning had gone down, the floor, the first floor was on, on fire. There was nothing left at the top. And um, so they started to leave on foot. So we got uh, back down the railroad tracks and uh, there was firing. We had lost a lot of people outside. Get back there, there was a medium tank and uh, told them, you know, what the story was. And as a result of that, uh, these my friend who had still in the building was brought out. But that took a, the whole lapse time was uh, like a day and a half. Uh, he had been badly wounded. Uh, I don't know if he can show you his, his hands that were mangled and other other wounds. And I guess he was just out of it after we first got there and um, in that cellar. He was a prisoner of the Germans. It was it was so important uh, because that was a place we were supposed to defend, and uh, also, of course, uh, he was still there. And uh, at that point, we, I'm quite sure we had heard about Malmody. At that point, I certainly was never going to be taken a prisoner. And uh, I'm sure that um, he would never have survived if he had, if left to the Germans. They would not have treated a man that was, had his arms, you know, almost chopped off and other wounds. They were not going to uh, pay much attention to him. So uh, that just happened to be just one of the incidents that a lot of things happened after that. I think we knew what we had. That's why, you know, the tanks, and uh, we were outgunned, and we didn't have the, the protection. Uh, <laughs> do it again? I don't know. We were young, and, and uh, we had ideas, and I guess we were doing a job. And perhaps if, if we uh, knew more about what they had in the way of their anti-tank guns uh, and in tanks, it would have made it harder. It would have made it harder because uh, they, they had tanks. The, the Tiger tank was this, the size and weight, you know, of what we have today. And they're still the only uh, German Tiger tank that I understand is left, there was a battle tank, is that La Glaze in Belgium is in front of the museum in La Glaze. And I understand that uh, it's there because a, one of the Belgian women, uh, after the battle area left there, was in the field. And she asked if she could have that tank. And uh, it was given to her. And there it is in um, it's in front of the museum, and it still has the 88. We thought everything about the German equipment was perfect, but it wasn't, as we learned later on. So it, uh, 
we probably would have been more frightened if we had known how powerful they were, really. I must say that it was a very emotional experience for me last year when my friend Alfred Bell came with his wife and uh, we met. Last time I saw him was in that building at Betty Cool. I hadn't uh, talked with him or heard from him from then, since that time, yeah. But what he did after the war, as he told me, it was uh, before he said, I made my living by the hands. After the war, he couldn't, he went to school. He wound up as a superintendent of a school district in, in Texas. And um, he's a nice guy. So, and he thanked me before that. That was the emotional, emotional part, see. And uh, so, and I've met a lot of the guys that I hadn't seen for a lot of years, but that was the most emotional one, really. That was Sergeant Ario Piro. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.